I'm Tracy Sable. Tonight on EWTN News Nightly, trip to a war zone. President Joe Biden travels to the Middle East as the violence between Israel and Hamas shows signs of intensifying. Scramble for a speaker. Republican Jim Jordan seeks to win over members of his own party. We're on Capitol Hill. The votes are in. Analysis of a major election in Poland and what it could mean for the unborn. And prayers for the Holy Land. The Latin patriarch of Jerusalem calls for a day of prayer and fasting. These stories and more tonight. From EWTN, the Global Catholic Network, this is EWTN News Nightly. Thank you for being with us on the Feast of St. Ignatius of Antioch. We start now with a developing story out of Gaza as hundreds of people were killed in an explosion at a hospital in Gaza City. Hamas and Israel have blamed each other for the explosion. Israeli forces claim that it was the result of a misfire rocket by Palestinian militants. The Hamas health ministry claims that 500 people have been killed. Our President Joe Biden is scheduled to land in Israel tomorrow on a high-stakes trip to the Middle East. The White House says that he wants to demonstrate his steadfast support for Israel in the face of Hamas's brutal terrorist attack. At the same time, the Biden administration does not want to see the conflict escalate. White House correspondent Owen Jensen reports. Owen. Tracy, Israel is just the first stop. President Biden also plans on visiting Jordan. Now, the White House also says it's working literally by the hour to bring American hostages home to where they belong, with their families, adding it's not clear where they are, how they're being kept, or what condition those hostages are in. And the officials have to be careful about what they say publicly. As President Joe Biden travels to Israel, the White House explains the purpose of his visit, writing, he will reiterate that Hamas does not stand for the Palestinian people's right to dignity and self-determination and discuss the humanitarian needs of civilians in Gaza. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, who's been on a multi-day diplomatic mission to the Middle East, first announced President Biden's trip, calling it a critical moment for Israel, for the region, and for the world. The president will hear from Israel how it will conduct its operations in a way that minimizes civilian casualties and enables humanitarian assistance to flow to civilians in Gaza in a way that does not benefit Hamas. Secretary Blinken has been working with Mideast leaders to help people caught in the crossfire. The U.S. trying to convince Israel to allow delivery of supplies to desperate civilians, aid groups, and hospitals. It is critical that aid begin flowing into Gaza as soon as possible. Today, Israel bombed areas of southern Gaza, killing dozens of civilians and at least one senior Hamas figure. The United States also preparing for the threat of a wider conflict. The Pentagon announced that Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin placed approximately 2,000 personnel and a range of units on a heightened state of readiness through a prepare-to-deploy order, which increases DOD's ability to respond quickly to the evolving security environment in the Middle East. And sailors aboard the USS Gerald R. Ford aircraft carrier will stay overseas longer than they planned because the Pentagon extended their six-month deployment. Also tonight, a senior Palestinian official says President Mahmoud Abbas has canceled his meeting with President Biden that was set for tomorrow. Abbas pulled out of that meeting after that deadly hospital bombing that left hundreds dead, which you heard about at the top of our newscast. At the White House, Owen Jensen, EWTN News Nightly.
Well, as the fighting escalates in Gaza and tensions in the region rise, violence is also expected to percolate to the north and east of Israel. Over the weekend, Israel reportedly bombed airports in Aleppo and Damascus, Syria, damaging its runways. The strike comes after rockets were launched from Syria into the Golan Heights. And joining us now is Nadine Mensa, Global Fellow of the Wilson Center Middle East Program and President of the International Religious Freedom Secretariat. Nadine, always good to see you. Uh, a a lot to get to, but first, I know you are just back from Syria. Tell us why you were there. So I was in the Northeast, um, where this um, government, the Autonomous Administration of North and East Syria, that has really the best religious freedom conditions in the Middle East, governs a third of Syria, one of the best kept secrets, where there are churches of Christian converts, has been bombed by Turkey, 200 airstrikes in just the past over a week. Um, with um, 48 people killed, including civilians, children. We have electrical plants, water plants, um, destroyed over 2 million people without water or electricity. So I was there to stand with them and really to see how, how they were recovering and, and why it is that the international community looks away at the crimes committed against them by Turkey. Yeah, and uh, we also mentioned the reported strikes on the airports in Syria. Apparently it happened uh, before Iran's foreign minister was set to visit the country. Nadine, what more do you know about that and also Iran's relationship with Syria? Right. So they're all, you know, all these bad actors really interact and, and stand with each other. And of course, sometimes they say Syria is um, Iran's closest ally. So um, they really um, take cover, um, cover Iran's deeds. And, and Iran, of course, wants to do this belt, right? This land belt from Iran all the way over to Lebanon and Israel through Syria. And and like I said, the Northeast blocks that from happening. And Israel um, tries to bomb when they see um, Iran setting up shop, moving military equipment in. And we've seen these kind of attacks. In fact, I um, last year, the year before, I think it was a year before I was in Raqqa actually watching airstrikes, and I was told, oh, don't be wor worried. We know those are friendly fire because they're, they're um, given a heads up. It was um, odd to see that everyone not concerned about it because it's such a normal occurrence there. Yeah, it really is hard for us to fathom over here what it's like right. over there. And I know that you know that region very well. Um, Nadine, how do you see this war between Israel and Hamas playing out? I mean, do you think it's going to spill over to other areas of the Middle East? There was so much concern. I was in Syria and Iraq as well. And as you know, the Iranian militias and the Nineveh Plains, for instance, control almost the entire Nineveh Plains. It's it's disheartening to see that the impact on on on, on Syriac, Assyrian, Chaldean Christians there, how how little um, agency they have, and how how many few are left really. And part of it is because of the strength of the Iranian militias. And 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 if in fact uh, you know they were all to be called up to, as some have, have, have actually the foreign minister said, you know, Iran threatened, you know, he said that the possibility of preemptive attacks by the resistance front is expected in the coming hours. And so, you know, he is has warned that that they could really call up all, all their Iranian militias in Syria, Iraq, and other places um, to rise up against American interests. Um, and that often religious minorities get pulled into all of that, even though they have nothing to do with that. In fact, they're far, they're not part of an American interest, but yet sometimes um, they, they seem to get the, the brunt of, of these wars and seem to impact them the most. So there's a lot of concern that if, that if Iran enters, Hezbollah enters, what that will mean for Lebanon, where, of course, we have a, a, a sizable population of Maronite Christians and others, um, what this will mean for the religious minority communities in the Middle East who have already endured so much hardship. 
We have probably about 30 seconds left or so, Nadine, but I want to give you the final word here. And where do you see this all going? Um, it's, it's hard to know exactly, um, other than I, I'm glad that America is standing strong. It's important that we consider, you know, how this affects other areas and places like northeast Syria where, um, you know, Turkey, um, Erdogan had, had complained that Gaza was without electricity and water and hospitals and schools had been hit, yet he himself had been the one to hit hospital schools, um, electrical plants and water plants in northeast Syria. So, I mean, it's time we stand with our allies like uh, the Autonomous Administration of northeast Syria. And we, we, we look out for the, the, our other allies in the area as all of this is going on. Nadine, we're going to leave it right there. Thank you so much for your insights. Always appreciate it. God bless you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, today is a day of prayer and fasting for peace in the Holy Land. The initiative was first suggested by Cardinal Pierre Battista Pizzaballa, the Latin Catholic Patriarch of Jerusalem. It aims to focus prayers from the faithful around the world on finding a peaceful solution to the war between Israel and Hamas. The U.S. Bishops' Conference shared Cardinal Pizzaballa's statement, which he says in part, quote, let us organize prayer times with Eucharistic adoration and the recitation of the rosary to our Blessed Virgin Mary. A multi-faith group of leaders in the United Kingdom is speaking out against recent anti-Semitic attacks. One Muslim leader is calling for peace among all people. It is deplorable and wrong that our Jewish community here has been the target of hate crimes. It is unacceptable that synagogues and Jewish centers have been targeted. Sheikh Ibrahim Magra was joined by the Anglican Archbishop of Canterbury and a Jewish rabbi. They called for greater unity amid the fighting in the Middle East. The U.S. continues to boost military presence in the Middle East with warships and planes. U.S. troops have also been told to be ready to assist with advising and medical support. The forces will be pulled from across the U.S. armed services. Officials say they will not serve in a combat role. Senators on Capitol Hill tell EWTN News Nightly that the terror group Hamas needs to be destroyed. You know, Hamas needs to be eliminated. I mean, you can't do that. I mean, they don't care about life. And you can't, you really can't compete against people like that, 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 that cares nothing about themselves, that just that want to kill people. U.S. officials are also helping Israel with intelligence and planning for any potential operations to rescue hostages. So after two weeks of paralysis, House lawmakers were called individually on the floor to vote on whether Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan would become the next speaker. Let's check in with Capitol Hill correspondent Eric Rosales with the latest on the speaker vote. And what's next? Eric. Well, good evening, Tracy. There's no other way to say it but just utter chaos right now inside the U.S. House. We are at a standstill right now. The House remains in recess at this hour. As of right now, uh, Congressman Jim Jordan, during the first voting, 20 Republicans voted against him, well shy of the 217 needed to become the 56th U.S. House uh, speaker. Now, uh, prior to the vote, Republican Conference Chair Elise Stefanik nominated Jim Jordan as speaker. Our friend and colleague Jim Jordan is a patriot. He is an America first warrior who wins the toughest of fights. Going after corruption and delivering accountability at the highest levels of government on behalf of we, the people. Jim is the voice of the American people who have felt voiceless for far too long. 
Democrats nominated Congressman Hakeem Jeffries as speaker and then used their time to go after Congressman Jordan's pro-life agenda. We're talking about someone who has spent his entire career trying to hold our country back, putting our national security in danger, attempting government shutdown after government shutdown, wasting taxpayer dollars on baseless investigations with dead ends, authoring the very bill that would ban abortion nationwide without exceptions. Some lawmakers believe that a speaker will be decided sometime soon. You expect the first few protest votes, that's fairly normal, say, hey, I'm kind of against what happened to McCarthy or I'm against what happened to Steve, but, but that's just the normal first cycle or two. I think it gets better over time, and hopefully we get him there today or the next couple of days. You know, I don't understand why so many people hold on to past grievances or whatever it is that causes people to uh, not stick with the majority. This is not what our founders gave us. It's actually what they warned against. A number of Republicans told me that, uh, yeah, our adversaries are currently watching, like Russia and China. They're watching the U.S. House in disarray right now. And there are a number of pressing issues that need to pass the House, such as funding for Ukraine and the border. And let's not mention that we need government funding bills passed as the government is about to shut down in about a dozen legislative days. At the Capitol, Eric Rosales, EWTN News Nightly. And we have a lot more still to come here on EWTN News Nightly, including confusion on the Hill analysis on the vote for Speaker of the House. And a Colombian bishop shares his experience of the Synod. reported earlier, the House of Representatives failed to elect a speaker. But what's next for lawmakers and how long could this process take? Joining us now to discuss the vote on Capitol Hill is political science professor at Catholic University of America, Matthew Green. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we appreciate it. This definitely is a pivotal day on Capitol Hill today. Curious, how long do you see this dragging out? And do you think that Jim Jordan will ultimately become Speaker of the House? Well, the answer to your first question is I have no idea. Uh, it's really, I, and I would defy anyone to really know how, uh, when, or when or how this is going to end. Um, you know, Jordan did not get, he lost 20 votes, which is a significant number on the first ballot. Now, he could get those all back on the next round. He might lose some more. It's unclear. Um, but we're, a far, we're far away right now from the number that he needs. Now, he could indeed, uh, as I say, he could get the majority. But he's got to convince 16 of those 20 to change their minds. And they were willing to vote on the House floor against him. That's in a public sphere. So I think it could be a, um, a steep climb for him. Yeah. And what do you think it'll get, you know, will take actually for him to get the votes? I mean, do you think there's going to be a lot of deal making and compromises here? I think he's going to have to do some of that. And I know that, uh, you know, some some of his supporters have said, you know, we don't want to make side deals or deals behind closed doors. But the reality of legislative politics is you've got to do that. So, for example, some of those New Yorkers who are really concerned about um, uh, tax issues, he may have to go to them. Some of the members of Appropriations Committee that voted against him, he's going to have to convince them that he'd protect their their uh, appropriations bills. Um, those are the kinds of things that he's going to have to do, I think, if he wants to be elected speaker. 
Yeah, and you know, let's talk about this. I mean, you know, here we are without a speaker. How problematic is that, uh, especially considering, you know, what we're looking at with the uh, war in Israel, uh, between Israel and Hamas, Ukraine, and also we have that looming government shutdown in less than a month. That's right. So for the first week or so, I'd say, you know, it wasn't a huge deal. The House could pick a new speaker, get back on track. Um, we're now in week three of no real legislative activity in the House at all. And as you say, we've got um, the CR, the continuing resolution is going to run out soon. Uh, there's issues about funding for Israel, funding for Ukraine. There's all sorts of other issues that people are bringing up, uh, the border, border security. And the House can't really do anything on any of those. And so I think at this point, we're starting to reach a fairly critical period. Yeah, and there has been, uh, you know, some suggestion that Speaker Pro Tempore, Patrick McHenry, that is, uh, could be nominated temporarily while a long-term successor is determined. How likely do you think that is to happen, and how long could he be in place temporarily? I think the odds are still pretty low uh, that Patrick McHenry would be given more powers, but I think the probability goes up every day that there's no speaker. Really, the, what the House Republicans are looking for is a kind of Paul Ryan, uh, somebody that everybody more or less likes. He hasn't burned many bridges. Uh, there's a lot of respect for him. He's ideologically conservative. And they're just not finding someone like that. And at this point, Patrick McHenry is probably one of the few that I think fits the bill. Now, if he is given this power, uh, say, more, more powers, it's unclear what those powers would be or how long. It could be for a month. It could be for two months. Um, there's the possibility he ends up becoming by default the next speaker because no one else can get a majority. Um, it's really um, unclear at this point, but I do think that uh, the odds that he sort of becomes the speaker by default through a temporary uh, granting of power is increasing. All right. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for weighing in. Always appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Up next on EWTN News Nightly, definition of marriage. The highest court in India issues a ruling on same-sex marriage. Plus, thousands gather in Pennsylvania for its third annual March for Life. A church leader involved in the Synod on Synodality says the global gathering is not intended to, quote, remove passages from the Bible. Colombian Archbishop Jose Miguel Gomez Rodriguez says the Synod does not have that kind of authority, nor does Pope Francis want it to do so. While the Supreme Court of India has refused to legalize same-sex marriage, the country's highest court says that it does not have the authority to make that decision. Instead, it must be handled by lawmakers. Faith groups in the country applauded the decision. Well, Ukraine is now using high-tech missiles provided by the United States in its war against Russia. The long-range ballistic weapons were delivered quietly around a month ago following a promise by the Biden administration. Other results are in from an important weekend election in Poland, and opposition parties have secured enough votes to oust the conservative ruling party from power. Three coalition parties won around 54 percent of the vote. Donald Tusk, a former president of the EU Council, will now try to form a centrist government. The ruling Law and Justice Party won the most overall votes, but it did not gain enough to continue running the country. One of the main issues in the Catholic country was abortion.
For analysis, we turn to Ivo Bender, manager of EWTN Central Europe, who is based in Poland. Ivo, great to be with you as always. Uh, first off, your reaction to the results, and was it at all a surprise? Well, thank you for having me. Uh, the results are almost exactly as they were predicted by uh, various uh, uh, polls and surveys. There is one difference, namely that there was a sudden surge of a coalition between the Polish Peasants' Party and the movement of Poland 2050, which is a sort of a center-left uh, urban party. So the, the Peasant Party is moderately conservative, you could say, and uh, their, their, their coalition partner is a uh, sort of moderately uh, left-wing. Uh, and they really uh, did not fit together, one could argue. However, they surged to 14% in the polls. So uh, uh, in the end, that is what mostly upset the, uh, the, the expected outcome. Ivo, for those who really aren't familiar with, with politics and how the government runs in Poland, um, can you tell us, you know, what this says about Poland, this election, and the direction the country may be headed? Well, what what will most likely happen is that opposition parties, because Poland is, like most European countries, a multi-party state as opposed to the U.S., for instance, or the U.K., where you effectively have two major parties, it means that the party that held power for the past two uh, two terms for eight years, the Law and Justice Party, the sort of moderate conservative party, uh, won the elections for the third time running, however, did not gather enough uh, votes in the parliament to form a government. If all the other parties that entered the parliament gather together and bring together a coalition, they would be able to form a government that will be very different from uh, the one that uh, held power in Poland for the, for the past eight years. Uh, and uh, this is something that we will see unfold uh, over the next two months or so, because that's how long the formation of a government might last in such a situation. And currently, as we know, uh, Poland has a near total ban on abortion. Uh, that said, what do you think will happen under this new government? I mean, is there any indication that maybe they would try to expand access to abortion? So uh, the, uh, the, the, the newly formed government, if indeed it is that coalition government, uh, has the parties that uh, will most likely uh, form it have different views, actually. So the leading one, the civic platform, which still is part of a, uh, the European People's Party, the, which claims to be a Christian democratic uh, uh, alliance, uh, is actually demanded that all their candidates uh, vow that they will vote for uh, allowing abortion till, the, uh, till week 12. Uh, the, uh, the, the left, the post-communist party, uh, actually is even more pro-abortion. And then uh, one part of that coalition I mentioned, the, uh, the peasant party, is uh, much more uh, conservative and much more pro-life in this respect. So that might mean that there will be a push for, uh, for uh, legalizing uh, abortion till week 12, on demand, so to speak, but it might be hampered by the peasant party, and it also will most likely be vetoed by the president. Yeah, and Ivo, um, we also know, of course, Poland is around 90% Catholic. 
What, if anything, does this election say about the state of the Catholic Church in Poland? Well, I think uh, we have a clear uh, change in the way that especially the young people voted. Uh, many of them uh, supported both the, uh, uh, the civic platform, the moderate left, and also the hard left, the, the former communists, which is uh, incredibly, uh, you know, personally disappointing, because that also means that uh, we did not tell the younger generation of the horrors of communism. And they are they are uh, again being attracted by uh, by the the direct descendants of the of the Communist Party of Poland, so that's that's definitely a big change. And that also means that the, these people are very clearly opposed to the uh, uh, to the Catholic Church and the Catholic religion. So this is sad. Well, Ivo, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us about all this. We always appreciate your analysis. God bless. Thank you very much. Well, finally tonight, thousands of people made their voices heard at the Pennsylvania March for Life yesterday. Pro-lifers as well as politicians participated in the third annual event. Speakers at the event criticized some of Governor Josh Shapiro's moves to ease abortion access. One representative asked to pray for God's blessing on advancing the pro-life movement. Well, we thank you for watching tonight. Remember, you can follow us on social media, Facebook, X, and Instagram at EWTN News Nightly. I'm Tracy Sable. Good night and God bless.